rather than thinking of care as some episodic feature of our lives that we pay attention to occasionally when something either goes wrong or when we are compelled to visit a doctor on or for our annual visit, health is now part of our everyday. And we are increasingly understanding that as the diseases that we die of are not infections or traumas, but are in fact chronic and continuous. And therefore, our creation of health has to be chronic and continuous, which means that we have to have settings of care and access to care that is chronic and continuous. And that means moving to places where we go every day, uh, whether that's to the grocery store or to the coffee shop or to the uh, restaurant or to a mall. And so I think that's what we're trying to increasingly do and do that in a manner that's cost efficient as well as uh, as well as patient or, or person centered. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the Gritty Nurse podcast. Hi, my name is Amy, and I am the co-host and co-founder of the Gritty Nurse podcast, an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. On our podcast, we shy away from nothing, discussing hot topics in healthcare such as mental health, social justice, health equity, women's rights, and women's health, and nursing as a profession. Hi, listeners. Thanks so much for joining. Today's episode is a health design episode, and it's an episode on medical malls. A bit of history and background on this topic. In 2010, Ellen Dunham Jones gave a TED Talk on retrofitting the suburbs and repurposing malls. In 2021, there was a Harvard Business Review article entitled, Why Healthcare Systems Should Invest in Medical Malls. Now, maybe you're familiar, maybe you're not familiar with this concept of retail malls being turned into medical malls. Now, before recording this episode, I was a bit familiar with two medical malls, one in Nashville, Tennessee, and one in Jackson, Mississippi. Today, we're going to focus on Dallas, Texas, and well, just generally this concept of the built environment being repurposed and refurbished. My two guests. First is Dr. Kadar Mate. Kadar is the president and CEO at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. That's IHI. He has other accolades and accomplishments, including, not limited to, he's the president of the Lucian Leap Institute and a member of the faculty at Weill Cornell Medical College. My second guest is an architect, and he comes to me via my friend, Aaron Peavy. Aaron is an architect and design researcher and vice president at HKC Architects. When I asked her, Erin, do you know anybody working on medical malls? She said, yes, I do. And she told me about Ian. Ian Sinet is a principal and board-certified healthcare architect who co-leads the Dallas Health Practice at Perkins & Will. Now, let's get to the episode where Kadar, Ian, and I are talking about medical malls. In 2010, Ellen Dunham-Jones gave a TED Talk on retrofitting the suburbs and repurposing malls. In 2021, Kadar, you were a co-author on an article in Harvard Business Review, Why Healthcare Systems Should Invest in Medical Malls. So I'm wondering if you can start by walking the audience through how you and your authors defined a medical mall. Well, you know, medical malls, for one thing, are very heterogeneously defined, actually. There's lots of different ways of thinking about them. We started with the concept that there ought to be uh, some... uh, proportion of the mall that has some medical services in it. Uh, it and that number kind of varies by setting, but is, in essence, the idea was that a, a, a portion of the mall, uh, not just a single outlet, but a portion of the mall was dedicated to medical or healthcare related services. 
Uh, you often see in malls when you're in an average mall, you might see an, an optician, an optical uh, store that's selling glasses and in addition doing a bit of eye, you know, eye checks or things like that. That doesn't constitute a medical mall. That's a single place within an institution that's doing something that's healthcare related. But a medical mall tends to have multiple stores and their thresholds are slightly different depending on who you consult, but usually somewhere in the neighborhood of five to, to 10 uh, stores or uh Portions of the mall are dedicated to uh, clinical care or providing some kind of healthcare service. And again, these can be very different. They can be uh, lots of heterogeneous groups, small, uh, distinct businesses, or they could be a single healthcare organization that's collaborating with multiple parts of the health ecosystem to deliver care services in a mall type environment. So, Ian, you're an architect and you do health design. Um, tell us how you first came to the concept of medical malls, or how did they come to you? Well, you know, my first experience with a medical mall was actually for a uh, for-profit health system that's in uh, Kingwood, Texas. And they had purchased the mall several years ago uh, and asked us to start looking at how to convert it to inpatient uses from surgical to inpatient beds. Um, and over the last several decades, um, which kind of dates how old I've how old I am, I've been working on these projects. Um, the the mall has been converted over time from just being kind of a little bit of inpatient outpatient mix to having individual specialty bed towers um, that are attached to it, and uh, you know different parts and pieces that just gradually get converted over time. And Ian, you're actually doing this work locally in Dallas. Can you tell the audience about that? Absolutely. Several years ago, there was a study that uh, was about population health. And there's this highway, uh, Interstate 30, that divides Dallas in the north-south direction. It runs east-west. So there's a north side of Dallas and a south side of Dallas. And through that population health study, what was discovered is that if you live south of I-30, the average life expectancy is about 20 years less than it is if you live north of I-30, uh, which is pretty amazing to think about that disparity with just in a few miles. And what was found is that a large contributor to that is actually the fact that there is a uh, health desert. Uh, there are no hospitals south of 30. And Redbird Mall, which is uh, a mall that is being converted right now into a Reju rejuvenated community center for Southern Dallas. A portion of Redbird Mall had a series of retail stores that had gone dark. They've gone out of business and were no longer being used. So in partnership with Redbird, um, UT Southwestern and Children's Health have come in to redevelop the larger sections of that mall, the anchor tenants, if you will, to uh, a medical use. Yeah. There are many ways, it seems to me, that medical malls are patient-centered. Kadar, why are they patient-centered? Well, you know, a medical mall, a mall of any kind, tends to be located in a place that people like to go. Um, people are used to going there. They have ample parking. Uh, often, uh, the medical services are only a component of the mall, and there are other things that they like to do when they're at the mall, like going to the movies or or uh, you know, uh, going to normal consumer shopping stores. So there's a lot of aspects of this that's putting care in the middle of our communities in the way that was just described in Dallas by Ian, this idea that we're using or repurposing something that's a community asset that people like to go to, that's centrally located, that's easy to get to. There's lots of public transportation often that, that flows in or around um, the mall environments. So that's typically not a big problem from that perspective of getting to it. 
again, malls tend to be accessible. They're designed for access so that people can get in and out of them easily um, and that there's natural flow through the mall so that people, again, are, are walking through spaces and seeing things that are uh, exciting to them about from a consumer perspective, but also now from if you're trying to get consumers to consume healthy things that will help enhance their health, then the mall malls can be potentially very helpful from that perspective. So there's lots of ways in which malls are very um, are very effective there and consumer friendly and, and centering and patient centered. The concept of big parking lots, free parking, and then to your point, the design of malls with flow in terms of escalators and elevators and how many of us know or would admit that we know older couples that tend to do their exercise laps at the mall. You know, it's interesting in other parts of the world, I see, I see very interesting things happening at malls that, uh, you know, is only starting to happen here. You know, this idea that a mall could be a community center, it can be a place that people go to not just consume things, but also to be part of the community. Uh, there's a mall in Singapore where students go to study. Um, and so now you're, you're potentially, if you deliver health services within a mall, you're potentially or locate some health services that are relevant to teenagers and adolescents then you could potentially start health-seeking behavior in a convenient location where these students are going to study um, as part of their daily daily routine. So you're moving health care into the normal presence of a person's life, which I think is something that we're increasingly seeing, not just in the medical mall notion, but in everything, right? We've moved it through the pandemic. We've kind of moved healthcare out of the realm of, uh, you know, thinking about it occasionally, you know, once a year when I have to go get my annual checkup or whatever, uh, to something that you're thinking about every day. And uh, things that people think about every day are going to buy their groceries or going to the mall or seeing their friends or seeing their, or studying in the case of students. And, you know, that's a really powerful and important uh, part of moving health and health seeking and health care into our daily lives. And uh, I think this is just part of that overarching trend of moving healthcare closer to our homes and into our into our lives. I think that's really, you know, what's interesting about these conversions of malls or the repurposing of malls is the scale. Um, you know, Catter, it's everything that you just mentioned, the, the ability to have mixed use um, uh, at, at the scale that we're talking about. You know, you talk about an anchor tenant building that is 200,000 square feet. That's a very powerful space for, for conversion to clinics uh, or, or, or inpatient facilities. It's easily accessible when you have uh, other tenants that are providing uh, services, uh, day-to-day jobs. If you have multifamily housing that has been converted on the property, if you have a grocery store. So I think the scale of the malls and the conversion is really quite a powerful idea. Yeah. Ian, I'd love you to go a little granular. So we have an old Sears that's going to be part of the medical mall at Redbird. You as an architect, like what steps do you go through to get you to an end product? So, so it, it's. Uh, I wish I could say that it was just like a very easy. Let's go ahead and just move in, ready kind of thing. But uh, typically, when you when you first walk into a dark retail store, a store that is no longer being used or has gone out of business, um, the first thing you see is that it is just a giant open concourse of space. It's got a grid that's going to be uh, very regularly spaced. It's going to have um, a storage area that's got uh, you know just. 
uh, it's it's in in pretty bad condition. And I think the other thing that you typically find with these um, dark stores is that you, you'll find neglect on the building facade and the exterior itself. And so uh, the first thing you do is you go in and evaluate just what's the existing conditions and how is that going to be able to be, what do you got to do to make it actually proper and ready for for um, medical uses. The second thing is you got to look at the structure. You know, when you have um, uh, outpatient services with imaging modalities like MRI or a CT scanner, sometimes the structure can't support that. So you got to look at how that's going to work. The other thing that's really interesting about when you start evaluating a design philosophy or process is that when you look at these large floor plans that are 150, 125,000 square feet, each, they, instead of that's basically an equivalency of a seven or eight story building that you would typically build for for outpatient services. So instead of being a skyscraper, you're really now looking at a landscraper and you're taking that verticality and you're putting it into two pancake floors or three pancake floors, depending on the size of the mall. And that has its own challenges associated with daylight, circulation, entries, uh, you know, a, a series of other other things that you will start looking at. The other thing is, is that a mall, a retail space in a mall, every facade has a front door. And usually that front door as an anchor tenant is meant to be a pass-through that gets you into the mall or vice versa. And so when you start looking at a medical use, sometimes you don't want every front, every facade to be a front door. So you have to look at kind of front of house, back of house concepts. And then the other thing is, is sometimes you don't want that thoroughfare to be coming through the middle of your clinic, especially if you have uh, vulnerable populations that are immunocompromised or if you have pediatric populations where safety is of the utmost importance. So there's a lot of little things to look at when you start getting into it, but the, uh, there's proof and examples that the results can be spectacular. And this is a really important point, which is that this is not a panacea or a solution for all you know, kind of issues. And I think you know, Ian, you're making a great a set of points around kind of the design and setup of the mall structure. And I, I will say, I, you know, I was certain, uh, after we published this, this paper in, in Harvard Business Review, we had lots of people saying, oh, that's a very intriguing idea. It's exciting and way of bringing care into the community. Um, and then people started working with the idea and thinking about it. And I, I remember very clearly this conversation I had with um, a small health system in uh, the western part of Illinois that was trying to, well, that was investigating a medical mall option for a dark mall, someplace that didn't have, where many of the, the anchor tenants had left and, um, or even many of the smaller stores had left and they were planning on taking it over and doing this. And they decided not to because the physical plant was so run down, you know, lots of challenges with uh, the, the mall and disrepair and the cost of kind of renovation for the kind of services that they wanted to deliver there was so high that it was going to be very problematic. And importantly, the services that they wanted to put there didn't need that kind of space. You know, they didn't need 200,000 square feet of space. They needed smaller uh, facilities. And actually they ended up making a choice, which is very interesting, uh, using the same types of concepts where they took a, um, a uh, tire store that had gone out of business, much smaller footprint, freestanding tire store, and had and then outfitted that as one of their urgent care centers uh, during the pandemic. And that has now become one of their most successful urgent care centers. So I, I think it's a really important individual decision by each market and each health system that's leading that market as to whether it makes sense to, to take over 100,000, 200,000, 500,000 square feet of space and outfit that for medical purposes or whether 
to scale back that ambition to something that's really fit for purpose, but still leveraging some of these principles of moving care out into the community, moving care closer to home, moving care to an environment that people trust, for example, uh, connectivity in space. It's not one uh, one solution that's going to actually take over everywhere. It's got to be intentional. And, and I think also, Ian, I was going to follow up. You and I had talked previously, and you said that, like, it's not nothing. Like, this is new HVAC systems. These are infection control policies and guidelines, new sanitation. Like, it's not just, like, a quick refurb, you know, go to Home Depot or go to Ikea and, you know, make it look nice. This is a complete design that's got to be health system compatible and meet regulation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and to Kata's point, that that's it's exactly uh, it's very complex, or it can be very complex. What we often see with these um, malls that have been uh, built over time and then are now in the current state that they're in is that they started with multiple property owners. Every retail company owns the land that they're with in the parking lot. So I think the first part is really you have to find a way to make a consolidation of of the property. Otherwise, you're never going to be able to get critical mass on making these conversions. So there's a little bit of a consolidation process. Certainly, the utilities that come to a uh, retail environment are not going to be as robust and redundant as they will need to be in a medical environment. Um, when you start looking at the HVAC uh, for heating and cooling, when you look at the power loads, when you look at the materials management, um, emergency services, things like that, now you have to start defining um, which parts of this mall or this dark store is going to be kind of the support space to be able to enable all the infrastructure associated with it. Um, so it, it can be quite complex. You'll find that envelopes of buildings have been neglected uh, in the retail environment. So when you go to work on them, they don't meet energy code anymore. So there's a high likelihood that as you do the conversion, there is going to be that threshold of you know that, that value matrix of do we move forward, do we not move forward in this location? And it can be really impacted based on just the condition of the existing space. Yeah. So Kadar, this kind of circles back to what you were, the point you were making. Are they financially efficient? Yeah, I mean, again, this uh, to Ian's point, this really depends on the the nature of the location and the business model of the health system that's uh, that's doing this. I think we've seen in some cases that they are very efficient, and they instead of putting up a new tower with significant uh, infrastructural costs associated with doing that, it might make more sense for an institution to invest in an ambulatory service center in a mall environment that. Uh, that is that can be outfitted to provide the kind of services that you want. Not everything requires a you know changing the grid pattern. You know, for example, in the mall, there are services that don't require that, but some do. If you decide that that's something that you want to put there, uh, I think it also makes sense. There's also reasons to think that it might be valuable, not just for the healthcare system that's making these investments, but for the community more broadly, because these are often places that are no longer being utilized, that are sort of lying, uh, is, that were once big employers, you know, the big box retailers and others were once big employers in a community. And now uh, those stores have migrated out of town and the jobs that were once in the mall are no longer available. So not to say that a medical uh, mall can necessarily employ everyone that was previously hired, but this is an opportunity for lots of people to potentially find new jobs as the mall is reinvigorated and can become a big part of the economic future. So not only is it salient, I think, for the health system, and uh, you could look at the kind of business 
value of the mall transformation as for the health system, which of course is making some of the big investments in it. But there have been investments made by philanthropic organizations and community development corporations and public sector institutions in medical malls because they know that this is important for the vitality of the of the community um, and the economic future of the community as healthcare brings jobs back into the community that have been otherwise lost in its environment. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing about uh, these these medical malls or uh, conversion of malls is that they really, it, it takes a village to, to make this happen. It takes a lot of partnerships and it's, it's a, it can be a heavy lift. But the, the point is that these can be, uh, these locations can be amazing catalysts to the neighborhood and the community themselves, whether it's going through access to healthcare, not just access to healthcare, but equitable access to healthcare through all the means that we've discussed just a few minutes ago, but also the fact that this becomes a catalyst for bringing living wages, jobs that pay living wages. It becomes the catalyst for bringing, fixing food deserts and so on and so forth. So it's really, I, I think that is the huge point about these opportunities is that this is a catalyst for the neighborhood and it happens at so many levels. You know, there's a there's an interesting, um, maybe a quick story uh, here that I remember when Don Berwick, who founded IHI many years ago, was running for governor of Massachusetts back in 2013, 14. Uh, Don showed me this image of the state budget in Massachusetts um, for, across all social sectors. Um, and so education, public safety, transportation, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And over the decade prior to 2014, every single public sector department had seen declining year over year expenditure from the public side. Um, except for one sector, and that was healthcare, right, which had seen massive growth in investment and, and spending over the same duration. And the reason I bring that up is because in large measure, if you look at the total budgets of our states, communities, uh, entire country um, here in the U.S., we've seen this sort of, um, I think, this regressive tendency to aggregate um, spending in healthcare to the detriment of many of our other public institutions, including things like public schooling, um, public safety, public transportation, other things that matter to us as, as, as society members. But this phenomenon of a medical mall sort of reverses that trend. It's still healthcare. It is healthcare investment, but it's now healthcare investment that's stimulating economic development of a portion of the ta- town, region, and otherwise. And I think that notion of kind of the of healthcare um, increasingly not bankrupting other aspects of our social systems and our societies, but instead creating investment um, in those communities and social uh, uh, systems is really exciting to see. So, And this is one part of it. I think there's other ways in which hospitals, frankly, go into a place uh, or ambulatory care centers go into a place and can stimulate all the things that you're describing, economic development, hiring, living wages, um, often converting former food deserts into areas of uh, whatever the opposite is, food plenty, uh, and uh, stimulating investment in infrastructure like uh, transportation and otherwise that can help build up a community uh, that has been significantly underinvested in for many, many years. So healthcare can be both. It can either be, it can either uh, 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 essentially reduce investment in those areas or it can stimulate it with intentional design like we're talking about here. How do you design to make it patient person-centered. Um, Ian, in the past, you've mentioned that you actually bring people from the community uh, into your meetings, into your discussions. Can you go into how you do that when you're designing the mall? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, community involvement, if, if you want to have a successful uh, conversion, you want to make sure that you have the stakeholders, the proponents that are going to be occupying this building when it's complete. You want to have their voices there at the very beginning. Because if you have their voices there at the, be- at the very beginning, they become the advocates for both through the design process, but also the construction progress. They build the energy. And then at the day that you first open this building and you start seeing patients, it's just this, it becomes this giant ray of sunshine at the community because they everybody says i helped create that item this that building what's there is from the things that i got to speak about and champion for my for myself and my family and my friends so that community involvement usually what happens is that um, uh, a mall like this will have a community space so what better opportunity but then but to use that space and bring people to where the transformation is going to happen so that you can have direct access and relationship to the conversation as you're having it um the when when you you take that feedback and as you start designing there are things that you want to build into it just from a pure architecture standpoint for example having a giant pancake of a floor plan that is 500 feet by 500 feet is really not that exciting when you're in the middle and there's no daylight so one of the first things you can do is start bringing in ideas of daylight we all know through research that um, having access to nature and to daylight helps patients heal and changes the attitude uh, and and uh, it's just a healthier environment to be in. So bringing daylight and nature into the space is really important. I think the, another interesting concept that comes from community conversations is how am I going to use this as a non-medical space? So can I have community events here? Can I bring, um, uh, can we have a farmer's market out in the parking lots that will be supported? If you create a motor court for the drop-off area, how can we bring an arts fair into this space to make it more than just a medical, uh, medical dedicated feature, but actually something that's a little bit more robust. And so those are all very exciting things to bring into it. The other thing about malls is that usually they're a series of concentric rings. And what I like to say is it's chaos to calm. So as you go from the chaos of the high-speed highways down to the circulation ring ring roads that loop the mall into the parking lot and then coming down to the drop-off drives and then eventually you walk in the front door. And by the time you get into the front door and you do a check-in and then you go and sit for your exam or for your infusion um, or your your x-ray or CT scan, you want to go from that really massive chaos and high speed down to a nice calm environment. And so nature, daylight, all those things, heating and cooling, all those things have big implications on success for that. Just think a little bit about that amazing story that, that Ian, you just told of chaos to calm. And, and I, look, I've been in thousands of hospitals around the world and uh, and almost none of them have that kind of feel right you walk into the front door of a hospital today just just the energy anxiety levels are peaking the flow of people running from one place to another is is uh, is overwhelming the signage and the directionality is confusing where am I supposed to go how do I get there you know these kinds of questions are ever present in, in people's minds and, and to, to hospitals credit they've been trying to work on these issues they know about them for a long time but you don't, there's no, very rarely do you see a, uh, a fountain in the middle with a beautiful natural, uh, naturally lit center of a, of a place that's incredibly calming and therapeutic. And I think this is the kind of thing that we can achieve in a mall that is, is potentially very difficult in a, a 15 story medical skyscraper. So I think it's, it's worth um, us thinking 
about this as a, a way of creating healing spaces, as Ian is describing, that um, is uh, that serves a particular purpose. And I, I want to just add one more point to this, which is that increasingly, uh, this notion of moving care into your part of the audience might have heard of this notion of hospital at home, which is moving care out of the hospital for many, uh, many conditions like urinary tract infections, respiratory infections, et cetera, moving care into the home. And, you know, that is that is an exciting development that's enabled by technologies and a variety of other things. But that's part of this bigger trend of moving care out of the the big pillars, the towers of uh, healthcare today, literally into the uh, into locations that are feel healthier to all of us, that are closer to our homes, in some cases in our homes, in the case of hospital at home, uh, but certainly moving care into those kinds of environments. And I think that has a broader uh, health creating effect on all of us. Uh, so I just wanted to, and it's a large, in large part derived by not just the movement of care out of these hospital, out of hospitals, but also to environments that feel healthier to us uh, fundamentally and feel more comfortable to us, feel more not not as alien to us as necessarily walking into uh, a hospital through a hospital front door. So analogous to that is if you ask people, most prefer to die at home. They don't want to die in the pillar of a hospital. I, I think that uh, malls, uh, this phenomenon in the United States is actually kind of, it, it's fairly unique. And I think it's uh, very much um, uh, an idea of the, the manifest destiny, that's a destiny and that's expanding, you know, westward with the automobile. And this becomes a, a very uniquely uh, United States kind of situation where if it wasn't for the car and the need for all the parking and all this, maybe these places wouldn't exist. And other parts around the world are a little bit more, um, they're just in a different position when it comes to that kind of kind of concept. So I, I do think that malls of this scale, the big flat pancake land uses on a couple hundred acres is very unique to the United States. But the principles, again, of, of this idea of converting space that's community-based into health-seeking or health-creating environments, that is not unique. So I agree with you that the, the, the vast expanse of mall territory is not, you know, you have much more densely populated areas in Western Europe and other big cities, and you don't see that kind of, that kind of, um, uh, that type of massive scale mall transformation activity. But I think you see a version of this story of moving clinical services out of the towers of the hospital and into settings that are much more accessible. You know, they're on public transport lines. They're much more easy to access. And they're built, you know, with the community in mind, not necessarily for the clinicians and administrators of the facilities, which is often how we construct hospitals. They're built fundamentally for people to traffic through them, to move through them, to enjoy them. Enjoy. I mean, consider the last time a hospital was built for enjoyment of the public. That is just not how hospitals are built fundamentally. Uh, they're built for convenience and ease, largely for the clinicians and the folks that uh, you know live, live in those institutions. What a great episode. I love this conversation. I love health design. And Kadar and Ian were really generous with their time and with recording this episode. Uh, one thing that I thought was pretty funny is it was um, breakfast early morning that we were recording, and Ian did mention the word pancake like three times. So I don't know what was going on with pancakes, pancake buildings, but I will never think of malls and floors at malls um, the same ever again. 
So this concept of space and the built environment and utilizing, refurbishing, repurposing space so that it can be person-centered, patient-centered, community-centered. The concept that Kadar mentioned of bringing health into the community rather than having people go into these built environment buildings that at the end of the day really weren't created, built for them, by them, around them. That's it for this week, audience. Until next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.